Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, would you come now through the spoken word and minister grace? I pray that you'd protect me, Lord, from error, separate in the minds of your children. If there's anything, Lord, that I say that is not according to your word, that they would have discernment to hear it and to be able to separate it out. And I pray you'd help me to be faithful to the text, Lord, to say what it says and not to say just what I want it to say. I, I pray that you administer to most your sheep today. Feed them, Lord. Feed them a rich diet. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 4, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, because it's been several weeks since we've been in Romans, let's back up in our minds and let's work our way through the book just a little bit, in terms of review. In the first three chapters, Paul is acting as a prosecuting attorney. He's bringing one group of mankind after another before the judgment tribunal bar of God. And he's showing them that they're without excuse, that they're sinners, that they're condemned, that they're under the judgment and wrath of God. So that's what he does. He, he lays out the whole theme of the book in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the book of Romans is about the gospel. And what's the main element of the gospel? It's a righteousness that God has revealed that we receive through faith. That's the heart and soul of this gospel. We can have a gift of righteousness from God on the basis of faith. Now, in order for Paul's readers to appreciate this gift of righteousness, he has to show them that they are not righteous to begin with. And so he starts with the heathen in chapter 1. He talks to people who don't have a Bible. They know that there's a God because they can look around and see creation and know there must be a creator. But when he addresses this group of people, he says in verse 20 of chapter 1, you're without excuse. Why? Because they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But instead they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of animals and people. So the heathen knew there was a God, but they didn't worship him. They didn't thank him. They didn't honor him. Instead, they traded him for images, idols. So how does God respond 
Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, that means they hold down the truth and unrighteousness. The heathen are holding down the truth about God in unrighteousness, and so God expresses his wrath. Well, how does God's wrath, what does it look like when he expresses it? We're not talking about future wrath. We're talking about present wrath right now. What does it look like? Well, it looks like God giving people over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Homosexual relationships are a result of the wrath of God, just releasing people to do what their depraved heart will do. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So God exercises his wrath by taking his leash off of the heathen and letting him go into all kinds of sin and just debauchery and sin and filthiness and immorality and impurity. But then Paul comes to chapter 2 and he addresses not the irreligious man, but the religious man, the hypocrite, the Jew. And he says in verse 1, you have no excuse either. <laughs> it's not just that the heathen are without excuse, but the religious are without excuse too. Why? Because they judge others while doing the same thing themselves. What's the result? How does God respond to them? Verse 5 of chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you start to see a consistency in how God deals with people? They're under or without excuse. God deals with them in judgment and in wrath because of their sin. And they were making excuses for themselves because they said, hey, wait a minute, we possess God's law. And not only that, we've been circumcised. We have the sign of the covenant in our flesh. Paul says at the end of chapter 2, that doesn't matter. You need to be circumcised in your heart. You can have God's law, but unless you keep it, you're no better than anybody else. You need to be circumcised in your heart and then keep this law that I've given to you out of love for me, which they were not doing. So the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, stand condemned before God. And then in chapter 3, he gives us this summary statement in verses 9 to 20. And he says, the whole world, he says in verse 9, what then, are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And he goes on to say, the scripture is being fulfilled, that there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Then he points to every faculty of their being. He points to their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth, and their feet. And he says, all of those parts of your body commit sin and conti sin continually. This is the, the verdict the Apostle Paul is bringing against all mankind, and he summarizes the whole three chapters in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The whole world is laid waste before God the judge. 
They're all accountable. The world means, the word means guilty. The whole world has become guilty before God because the law has revealed their sin and, uh, the law has exposed them. Every mouth is closed. No one can justify themselves. No one can make excuses for the life they've lived. God sees their life, their actions, their heart. And by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 20, you feel like, man, there is no hope for anybody. This whole world is doomed. They're all condemned. They're all going to hell under the wrath and judgment of God. What can possibly be done? And from a human standpoint, there's nothing. There's nothing anybody can do to, to, to bring themselves out from underneath God's judgment. And if Paul ended his letter in chapter 3, verse 20, we would just close our Bibles and go home and say, well, I guess there is nothing. We're all doomed. We're headed for eternal damnation, and there's nothing that can be done about it. But in verse 21, he has those two beautiful words, but now. The word but means a contrast is coming. I have showed you gloom and doom and wrath and judgment and sin, but let me show you something that you haven't been expecting. Remember, the the gospel is about God's righteousness being revealed from faith to faith. Notice what he says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, having been witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, not a human righteousness, a divine righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Folks, this quite possibly could be the most important paragraph in your Bible that I just read to you. It is amazing in the depth of theological truth that God is showering upon us, almost like a deluge. You can take each word in this paragraph and spend a sermon on it. That's how deep this goes. So we have hope starting in chapter 3, verse 21. And the hope is that even though we have no righteousness by which we can stand before God accepted, God is providing us his own righteousness, not through the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we receive Christ by faith, he becomes our propitiation, which means that sacrifice that turns away God's wrath that was upon us. Ephesians 2 says that we are children, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. You and I were born into this world children of wrath, just like everybody else. But at one point, when we put our faith in Christ, wrath was lifted because Christ became our propitiation. He turns it away. So Paul here in this paragraph is answering the greatest problem that every person in the world has. Your greatest problem is not your lack of money. It's not your diseases and your illnesses. It's not your marriage problems. It's not your lack of work or employment. Your greatest problem is that you stand before a holy God who will judge you one day, and unless you have his righteousness, you will be damned. And the gospel provides that gift of righteousness by which we can be reconciled to God. 
So the book of Romans is about the gospel, about how we can be reconciled to God and the human condition, or I should say the human requirement to be reconciled to God is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he tells us in chapter 3, verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now some of the people receiving Paul's letter may have thought, is this some kind of newfangled heresy that Paul's preaching? I mean, we're Jews. What do you mean? Faith in Christ apart from works of the law? We always thought that we got right with God through the law. And so Paul is going to say in chapter 4, let me explain to you that justification has always been by faith. And he chooses to embody the great theological truths of chapter 3 in a person. And the person he chooses is the founder of their own religion. Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish faith. And so he takes chapter 4 to show us the truth of justification by faith in the life of their great hero, their founder, Abraham. And what he's done so far in chapter 4 is he's, he's shown us that Abraham was justified apart from works, apart from circumcision, and apart from the law. That brings us up to chapter 4, verse 16. Okay, were we all together? Great. Great. Now, what Paul is going to do in chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, is he's going to answer a question. And the question is, why did God decide to justify people through faith? He could have decided to make people right with him in any number of ways. Why did he choose faith as the human means by which people get right with him? We know that's the question because of verse 16. Let's read it. For this reason... It is by faith, in order that it might be accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. You see, he's giving us reasons why God saves people through their faith. And so he's going to give us four different reasons in this paragraph of why God decided to justify people through faith. The first reason is so that it would be by grace. Look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Now, he says, for this reason, it is by faith. What is the it he's referring to? What does he mean, it is by faith? Well, go back to verse 13. He says there, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He says Abraham and his descendants were given a promise. Do you see what the promise is? That he would be heir of the world. That he would inherit the world. We'll talk a little bit about what that means later. But God gave Abraham and his descendants this promise. This promise was not going to be fulfilled through the law, but rather through the righteousness of faith. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on today. Paul was not an easy guy to follow. You're going to have to really think. Tune in and really cut out all distractions and meditate with me upon these verses because I, I promise you there's gold in these verses for your spiritual life. Okay. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed. The promise of inheriting the world in verse 13, came 
Not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He doesn't say that the promise comes through faith. He says the promise comes through the righteousness of faith. Remember that chapter 4 is all about being justified by faith. So when he says that the promise comes through the righteousness of faith, I take him to be saying the promise comes through a person not having a righteousness of their own, but God's own righteousness credited to him through faith. And when he is justified, or God declares him righteous through faith, a promise is given him that he will inherit the world. We have the same promise. God has promised us the world. He's promised that he's going to destroy this present earth and create a new heavens and a new earth on which righteousness dwells, in which we will dwell forever. We have a promise of everlasting glory. That promise is made not through obedience to the law. It's made through the righteousness of faith. In other words, those people who are justified inherit, receive the fulfillment of that promise that God has made, that you shall be heirs of the world. So, what is the it in verse 16? For this reason, it is by faith. It's the righteousness of God that obtains the promise of inheriting the world. For this reason, that is by faith. Now, he starts off by saying, for this reason. What reason? For this reason, it is by faith. We'll go back to verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. So, for this reason, what is this reason referred to? It refers to the fact that the because the promise is going to be nullified if it's according to the law. And why would the promise be nullified if it's according to the law? Well, verse 15, it's because if you try to use the law to get right with God, you will fail and you'll receive God's wrath. That's what he's saying in verse 15. That's the reason why God decided that it would be by faith. Because he doesn't want you to fail, and he doesn't want you to receive wrath. He wants you to receive grace and life. And so he made it by grace through faith. So that's the reason he was referring to. Verses 14 and 15, the law brings about wrath. Then he says, for this reason, the reason that the law only brings about wrath, it, the promise of righteousness through faith of inheriting the world, The reason that that is by faith is in order that it may be in accordance with grace. What an interesting statement. Why is faith so essential in your salvation? Why is it crucial? Well, according to this text, it's because faith is in accordance with grace. Faith is the only condition of the human heart that accords with grace. Faith and grace are like a hand in a glove. They go together. You see, faith is a depending grace. It doesn't offer anything, but it receives everything. Faith is the hand of the starving man that reaches out to receive food. See, grace is God giving. Faith is man receiving. And that's why faith and grace go together. God wants to give, but the only thing that can receive it is faith. Now, grace is God's undeserved favor. Sometimes the word favor is applied 
to Jesus. And in that case, of course, it doesn't mean undeserved because Christ did deserve all favor that he received. But when God uses the word favor or grace to apply to sinners, it's undeserved blessing, undeserved kindness, undeserved favor to them. And sometimes that favor is the grace to be reconciled to God, but sometimes it's empowering grace. It's grace to live for the Lord. There's all kinds of various grace that God gives to his people. So the reason God decided that justification would be by faith is because he wanted justification to be according to grace. And faith is the only condition of the heart that is in sync with grace. If justification comes to us any other way than faith, then we're not saved by grace. Justification is impossible by the works of the law, and that's why it has to be by grace. And that's exactly what he told us back in chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace. That's how justification comes. Now, in case some of you are new and you don't know what I mean by justification, let me just back up and explain that. Justification means that God declares you righteous. Unless God does that, you will stand before him guilty. You'll stand before him as an unrighteous person. And the only thing that God will be able to do with an unrighteous person is to punish them. You need the gift of righteousness to be exonerated of your crimes against heaven, your rebellion and your depraved actions toward him. So justification is God declaring the sinner righteous when he believes in Jesus Christ. So the first reason that God has decided to do it by faith is so that it would be by grace. Okay, so the second reason that God decided that justification would be by faith is so that it would be guaranteed. And this is the one I love. This is the one that I just want you to zero in on and let this bring comfort and security into your life this morning. For this reason, the promise of righteousness of inheriting the world is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. So that the promise will be guaranteed. You see, our justification has to be by faith, because only then will our justification be guaranteed. God decided it would be by faith. Why? Because faith accords with grace. But why is it important that our justification is by grace? It's because God's grace is what gives the guarantee. Now, if you're reading a King James Version, it uses the word sure, so that the promise will be sure. If you're reading a New Living Translation, it says certain, so that the promise will be certain. But you get the idea. God wants the promise that he's made to you to be guaranteed, to be sure, to be certain, so that you can hold on to it like, like a rock that you're fastened to that will never move. God's promise to you is not some wishy-washy kind of a thing that maybe yes, maybe no. It's a guaranteed promise. But it's guaranteed through His grace, according to verse 16. So the only way our eternal future can be guaranteed is if it rests upon the grace of God. And do you want to know that your eternal future with Christ in glory is guaranteed to you personally? Do you want to know that? 
The only way you can know that is by knowing that you're under his grace. You say, Brian, what in, what in the world are you talking about? What does it mean to be under God's grace? Well, turn with me to the next chapter in Romans, to chapter 5. And we're going to look at the last two verses of the chapter. Romans 5.20. It says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to focus in on verse 21. What does sin do? Reigns in death. What does grace do? Reigns in righteousness to eternal life. Now, it says both sin and grace reign. What kind of a person reigns? A ruler. A king reigns. He's saying sin is like a king. And grace is like a king. And both sin and grace have subjects underneath them. And sin is like a king domineering over its subjects. And what's it doing? It's killing them. It's producing death in their lives. And because sin is like their king, they can't escape. They're under the dominion of that king. They're trapped. They're, they're in bondage to sin as the king of, of that person's life. But grace is also like a king. Grace has its subjects. And those people who are under the dominion of grace, God's grace is a power just like sin is a power. I want you to get this. We're talking about the omnipotence of God. When God puts someone under the reign of His grace, they come under the free and sovereign and omnipotent grace of God, and that grace is like a king that takes that person where they are, rescues them, breaks the chains, rescues them, brings them under grace, and now they're justified, and that grace begins to sanctify them, and that grace empowers them for ministry and service, and that grace one day is going to glorify them. And this grace is not a temporary thing. You know, it, it works for a while, and then it doesn't work anymore. Once God's grace lays hold of a person, and that person comes under the grace of God, that grace takes them from justification to glorification. Grace is powerful. Now, turn to chapter 6, verse 14. Notice this. For sin shall not be master over you. Paul's writing to the whole church in Rome. He says, sin shall not be master over you. Well, how come? How is that even possible that sin would not be master over me? For... You are not under law, but you are under grace. There's your key phrase right there. These Christians are under grace. What does he mean under it? Under, what does that mean? We'll go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Folks, either you are under sin today or you are under grace. Both of them are like kings. Both of them rule over their subjects. And the only way you can be right with God is if God comes to you when you are under sin and can't break away and rescues you, breaks the chains, brings you into his kingdom. And then when you're under grace, you're under its power. And that grace begins powerfully working in your life. 
The Spirit of God comes in. He begins to empower you. He begins giving you new affections. He makes you alive together with Christ. He begins sanctifying you. He convicts you of your sin. He begins to make you mourn and grieve over the sins in your life. He gives you a love for righteousness and holiness and a hatred for the evil that you once were enveloped in. He begins taking you through trials and tribulations, and he brings you all the way to glory. That's what it means when you're under grace. The power of God is at work upon your life. And if you are under grace, he's not going to desert you. He's never going to leave you. He's going to bring you all the way there. That's why the promise is guaranteed by the grace of God. It's not, well, I wonder if it'll work. I wonder if it won't. The only question you have to answer is, am I under grace? If I'm under grace, there is a a bedrock of security for your Christian life in that in verse 16 of Romans 4, there's a bedrock of security there. How can we know that eternal life is guaranteed? Remember he says that sin, I'm sorry, that grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life, all the way to eternal life. Grace reigns to eternal life. But how can we know that eternal life is guaranteed to us? Well, ask yourself this. Has grace justified me? Is grace sanctifying me? Is grace empowering me? Is grace quickening me? Is grace convicting me of sin? Is grace transforming me? If, if you can answer yes to these questions, then you can answer yes to the, to the proposition that I know that grace has guaranteed my eternal future. That's how you can know. Now, think along with me here. In order for Abraham to have the guarantee that he would inherit God's promise, God had to bring life from death and bring something into existence that did not exist before. And then we get that from verse uh, 17b. There it says, Even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. And then verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. What does grace do? What did God do through grace to guarantee the promise to Abraham? He gave a dead womb life. And he called into existence an heir that didn't exist before. Isaac didn't exist. God had to call him into existence to guarantee to Abraham that the promise was coming and it would never fail. God's omnipotence had to be exercised in order to guarantee the promise. I want you to see that. And man can't do this. Man can't raise the dead. Man can't create something out of nothing. Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham's descendant didn't exist, but God's grace made that happen. And without the birth of Isaac, the promise to Abraham would have failed. But in order to guarantee the promise to Abraham, God gave life to the dead womb and brought Isaac into existence when he did not exist, and that guaranteed to Abraham that the promise that he was going to inherit the world would come true. The problem, though, is, hey, wait a minute. Isaac doesn't exist, and it humanly can't exist, because Sarah has gone through menopause, 
and it's impossible for her to conceive. She's 90 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. Humanly, this was impossible. They can't do it. And what God is showing here is that human works and human efforts and human resources have been tried. Abraham's tried to bring the descendant into being through Hagar, right? Ishmael was the product of that, and God says, no, 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 he's not the one. I've got someone else. I'm not trying to cooperate with you to make this happen. I'm going to make it happen all by myself, Abraham. And you are going to watch me do it. I'm going to raise the dead, and I'm going to call into being that which didn't exist before. And that's what Isaac was. He was the child of promise. God supernaturally brought this baby into the world apart from the ability of the parents. And you know what? God is doing exactly the same thing today. We call it regeneration. We call it the new birth, being born again. God wants to guarantee the promise to you. How do we know that we're going to inherit the world? You know it because God brings you from death to life and he calls into being something that doesn't exist. You say, Brian, is that anywhere in the Bible or are you just spinning tales here? Well, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 2. And it's so clear there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Among them, among the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see the point? Our guarantee of the promise is the same guarantee God made to Abraham. We have to know that we've been made alive together with Christ. Now, was God looking for our cooperation in order to be born again? Well, how much cooperation can a dead man give? He can't even flutter his eyelids. He can't do a doggone thing. God has to come to him when he's hopelessly and helplessly lost without the ability to do one thing and make him alive. He joins him to Christ. He unites him to Christ. And when that happens, he's new. His heart has been changed irreversibly forever. And the promise of inheriting the world is made to him and is guaranteed through that new birth. And not only does God guarantee through a new birth, a new life, a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, but also he calls into being that which didn't exist before. What was that? Our faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace... Before I go there, let me show you the connection in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What he's saying is that this regeneration came by the grace of God. Just like we find in Romans 4.16. He talks there about the guarantee being made through grace. The way God guarantees is through raising the dead. He's saying the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 2. But now verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. At one time you didn't have faith. At least you didn't have saving faith. 
you may have believed intellectually, and I did. You know, I, I grew up going a, a religious guy, I guess. I went to church on Sundays. I had an intellectual assent to certain truths. But I didn't possess saving faith in Jesus Christ. God called it into existence where it wasn't before. And he did that for you. He called your faith into existence. You know, we have this idea sometimes that faith is our contribution. And once we meet God halfway, then he'll come through the other half of the way. That's baloney. Because you and I don't have the faith to start with. How can a sinner, dead in sin, bent on evil, depraved, whom God has given over, how can that person have saving faith in Christ? Faith issues forth from a heart. You, you, you can only believe according to your nature. And if you have a nature of a sinner, you're going to exercise your actions according to that nature. You must have a new nature in order to exercise faith in Christ. So praise God. The promise is guaranteed to you. And I want you to bank on that today. We don't have to go through life afraid. Oh, I wonder if I'll make it. I, I just don't think I'm going to do it. I, I don't think I'm strong enough to hold out to the end. Do you possess faith in Christ? It's not your strength that is all that important. It's his strength. He is stronger. If he's stronger than me, that's all I need. I'm going to hold on to him. Even if I'm holding on by a thread, I'm holding on to him and he'll see me through. So that's the second reason. So that the promise would be guaranteed. Third, so that it would be global. Let's go back to Romans 4. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to who? To all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law. Now who, are, who are those who are of the law? Israel, Jews, right. But also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, not one, many nations have I made you. What's he saying? He's saying the promise is made to all of Abraham's descendants. But what kinds of descendants is he thinking about? Are these his physical descendants? Nope. Go back to verse 11 of chapter 4. He tells us what kind of descendants he has in mind here. Romans 4.11 Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And he also will be the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, do you see what he's saying? There's two groups of people that can be considered the descendants of Abraham. One are the people that believe without being circumcised. The other, those who believe with being circumcised. But they're both Abraham's descendants. What he's saying is that his descendants are believers. And the promise that they would be heir of the world is made to believers who follow in the steps of Abraham who had faith in God. So if you have faith in Christ, you're one of Abraham's children. That's everywhere in the New Testament we find that truth. For we are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ in Galatians 3. So this promise that you would be heir of the world, that's made in a global sense, that promise is offered to all believers throughout the world. Now in the Old Testament, 
That promise was made to one tiny group of people on a tiny piece of real estate in the Middle East, Israel. And by and large, they were the possessors of the promise. But when Jesus came, he threw open the doors of mercy and he commanded his disciples to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel to all creation. And today, Jews and Gentiles are streaming in. It's global. It can be South America, Africa, Europe, United States, Canada, any part of the world that a person exercises their faith in Jesus Christ, they inherit the promise that they'll be an heir of the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters on every continent of the planet. And God is saving people out of every tribe and people and tongue and nation and bringing them into his family. It's global. You know, we talk about blog posts going viral, right? This guy puts something on YouTube and pretty soon that... Someone shares it, and they share it, and they share it, and pretty soon two million people have watched it. Well, God kind of did the same thing with the gospel. It went global to every part of the globe. And that's why we send out missionaries. That's why we pray for them. That's why we send money to help them. Because this gospel's got to get to every quarter of the globe so that all people can hear it, so that God will bring in his elect from every nation on the planet. So it goes global. Why did God decide justification would be by faith? Because he had predetermined that this salvation was going to go global to every people and tongue. It's by grace through faith so that anyone anywhere who believes is guaranteed eternal glory. And I'm glad about that. Because if it wasn't global, no chance for me. Because I'm not Jewish. How many Jews do we have here? None? Aren't you glad that it went global? <laughs> Otherwise, we're all headed for hell. But we're headed for heaven and everlasting life. Now, the fourth reason he gives us here is so that it would give all the glory to God. Let's read verse 19 to 21. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body now as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb... Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Here's our phrase, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Faith gives glory to God. And the greater your faith is, the more glory you can give to God. Now, why is that? It's because when you trust God, you're saying, God's trustworthy. When you trust God, you're lifting up and magnifying God's power and God's faithfulness and God's trustworthiness and God's goodness. You're saying, God is good. God's faithful. God, and you're extolling the perfections of God. That's what it means to glorify God. See, when we talk about glorifying God, we're not saying that we're adding glory to God because that's impossible. How can we add any more glory to God than he already has, right? We're not adding glory to God. We're calling attention to the glory he already possesses. And the way we do that is by living a life that shows to other people around us that God can be trusted, that God is faithful, that God will meet our needs, that God is good, that God's powerful. God's glory is the greatness of his beauty, the shining of his excellencies, the radiance of his perfections. 
Now, how does faith call attention to God's glory? Look at verse 21. It says, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Here we're told that faith is the assurance that God is able to make good on his promises. And I'll also say he's also willing. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Which is a great point. The faith can grow. The faith you have now can get bigger and stronger. Abraham's dead. But notice that faith is the assurance that God is able and willing to make good on his promise. I'm going to share an illustration I got from John Piper because I couldn't think of a better one. But he's, he talks about a daddy who's in the swimming pool. And little three-year-old Susie is standing there. And daddy holds out his hands to her and says, Susie, jump. I'll catch you. I promise. Now, what's going to bring the most, what's going to make daddy look really good at that point? If Susie jumps, right? Because she's going to say, my daddy never tells a lie. My daddy's so strong. My daddy's so good, he would never tell me to do something that wasn't good. So she jumps and daddy catches her. But if Susie is afraid and she runs around and she wrings her hands and she says, oh, I can't do it, daddy. That doesn't make daddy look good. Because she's saying, daddy really can't be trusted. And he might be playing a dirty trick on me and I might drown. He might not catch me, right? But let's change the illustration a little bit. Because the harder it seems for God to fulfill his promise, the more glory we give him when we trust him. Let's say little Susie is standing at the deep end of the pool and this mean, growling dog crawls underneath the fence and he starts to come towards little Susie. And she's afraid, so she jumps up on the diving board and she starts to walk out to the end and the dog starts following her and his fangs and saliva is dripping down and he's barking, menacing at this little girl. And the dad sees this happening and he says, Susie, jump, I'll catch you. But daddy's way over in the shallow part of the pool and she's way over in the deep end. And she's never jumped from three feet in her life before. She can't swim. That water's deep and she doesn't know what to do. Now what's going to make daddy look really, really good at that point? If If she jumps. And once she jumps, dad swims like crazy, picks her out, brings her to safety. Someone chases the dog out underneath the fence and she's saved. She has just glorified her daddy (laughs) by trusting him. And we need to glorify God by trusting him. Strong faith gives God much glory. So the reason God does everything that he does is for his own glory. And if we don't get in sync with God by seeking to glorify him, we're out of step. Because God's passion is to glorify his great name in all the earth. And we just need to come into line with God's great passion. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Hallowed be thy name. The very first petition Jesus taught us to pray is to get in step with God and his passion to display his brilliance and glory and perfections throughout the world. So folks, this morning, let's extol the grace of God which made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions and called our faith into existence. God's grace reigns in us to eternal life. Let's also rejoice in the fact that Christ has guaranteed our eternal glory. 
It's guaranteed because it comes to us under the reign of his grace. It's not fickle. It's not wishy-washy. It's certain and sure. Let's recommit ourselves to reaching all peoples with the gospel because this gospel, this justification by faith, has been offered to all people throughout the world who hear it and believe it. So our part, let's get in line with God. God is extending this offer to all people. Let's, let's pray for our missionaries. Let's fund our missionaries. And praise God, the Lord has given us a great ability at the bridge to do that. I'm so thrilled. And maybe the Lord at some point will actually send you on mission. If not overseas, at least in your neighborhood and where you work. You are a missionary. You are a bearer of Christ to those people. Let's also recommit ourselves uh, to trusting God with our family, our work, our finances, and our future. Because when we trust God, God gets the glory. Amen? Lord, thank you for this precious passage. I pray that your people today would sink their roots deeply down into this promise of Romans 4.16 to know that their eternal future is guaranteed by what God has done in Jesus Christ so that they don't, they can, they can banish the kind of devilish fear that causes them to waffle back and forth and never have any assurance. But the Lord, you'd grant them assurance, real biblical assurance through the, the means of your grace, knowing that you've started the work and he who has begun that good work will be faithful to complete it. We give you great praise today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.